cybersecurity is considered a highly technical field requiring hard skills and engineering know-how, but one federal chief information security officer sees a pressing need for cyber professionals to hone their soft skills, like creativity and teamwork. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with Robert Wood, the chief information security officer at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, about his new project, SoftSideOfCyber.com. This initiative is something that has been on my mind for years now, and it's really about trying to bring awareness to the other half of skills that make a cybersecurity professional effective, impactful, valuable inside an organization. So in my experience, these kind of skills are applicable no matter what role you fill. If you're working in the security operations center, it's not just about being able to review logs and identify patterns. You have to be able to communicate these things to your management, communicate potential incidents to your management. If you're a penetration tester, yes, you have to be able to find vulnerabilities and get creative and string these bugs together into into working exploits. But then you need to communicate the findings to somebody who has to fix them. You have to do so in a way that they don't feel defensive and adversarial at the other side of it so that things actually get fixed. And if you're a chief information security officer or anyone in management or a leadership position, you have to be able to build coalitions and be able to wield influence and establish partnerships and groom those things over time. And My passion for this particular issue is about trying to help every cybersecurity professional across our field, which, you know, is not just federally focused. It's, you know, there's cybersecurity in all sectors, whether you're in a startup, a big enterprise, or, of course, the public sector, to be more effective in their jobs. Because ultimately, we, the cybersecurity field, have to work through other people, other teams to get things done. We're not as hands-on keyboard managing the risks as we sometimes think. And so like trying to lean in and provide a resource to drive this culture change, this introspective change for people is really where my my passion is at here. Yeah. I mean, great points all around. And, you know, you wrote a, a blog initially just laying out the importance of soft skills and a lot of what you were just uh, describing there. And one of the aspects of this is that the field is kind of filled with memes and guidance that quote unquote shames users, as, yep. as you put it. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of that aspect of the cyber field and how you're trying to turn that on its head? So we see this kind of culture reinforced through these big security conferences and in, and in tactical implementations of security programs. So think like the big DEF cons and these other exploit or offensive security themed conferences. There's there's a pride and, and an affinity sort of ascribed to these security professionals who can find zero days with a particular piece of software or, or something, and then they drop it in the community and everyone thinks they're rock stars and they want to be like that person. And while that work is very technically interesting, it puts the company who was impacted on the defensive. And if you want to work with somebody and get them to fix it, shaming them is probably not the best way to go about doing that. Um, And so in like bringing this back into an organizational context, if you're trying to uh, train people on social engineering awareness and stuff, calling them dumb because they fell for a phishing email is not the best way to engage them. But recognizing that that person has a lot on their plate. They're probably getting hundreds of emails a day 
if their computer system or their, their IT environment allowed them to do something, then why are we considering that thing dangerous? Like there's there's a lot of cognitive overhead that we expect users to manage constantly, even though they're not security professionals. And I believe it's incumbent on us, the security field, to take more ownership over how we create a more human-centered approach to cybersecurity. And I don't think we can effectively do that unless we empathize and unless we kind of tap into these non-technical, these soft skills that are necessary in our field. And and I could riff on other parts of the security field in doing this. Like, you know, you see it in software security or application security where you are engaging software developers who are contributing code and, and shipping systems and all of that. If you're putting in place a lot of hard gates and blockers and things like that, they're not going to want to engage with you. They're going to find a way around your system. If you are being really restrictive with the way that you authorize new tools, people are just going to introduce shadow IT and they're not going to tell you about it. There's, I mean, we see this manifested everywhere in cybersecurity. And so it's, it's actually a risk for us as security professionals to not embrace this kind of mindset and be more empathetic to our users, to the people on the other side of the coin. Yeah. And you've also organized a soft side of cyber skills framework. It wouldn't be cybersecurity without a framework of Naturally. some sort in place. But what what is this framework and how can people use it to get after some of the goals, some of the, the desirable outcomes with security that you've just described? Yeah. So this is the starting point for us. The framework, as we see it, is representative of the core skills needed to be a well-rounded security professional. So it's things that are more introspective, like self-managed. So like the way that you take care of yourself. You know, burnout is a big problem in our field. There's stories left and right about the CISOs getting burned out or people who are in the trenches getting burned out and how that's related to these spikes in unfilled jobs and how that's just creating more systemic industry-wide risk. And I mean, we have a an epidemic of, of people who just don't seem to be in a position to take good care of themselves and manage their time effectively. And so they get burned out naturally. And so that's part of it. You know, there's these introspective skills, creativity, uh, time management, et cetera. And then there's the more externally facing skills, your teamwork potential with other organizations or business units in whatever setting you're working with, your communication skills, writing, public speaking, just running a meeting or participating in a meeting, things like that. One of the things that we also have planned but have not yet launched is a more leadership-oriented part of the framework that is more centered on the chief information security officer role that, you know, all the things that they have to do, like budgeting and strategic planning and hiring and interviewing and vendor portfolio management, all that stuff that is really essential to the role of the security executive that, of course, nobody ever teaches you how to do it. It's just kind of implicitly expected that you know how to do it or that you're good at it. And those things can make a huge impact on whether or not you're successful or not in the role you're in. And so uh, we are we are hopeful that people start taking these framework resources and just start taking them into their jobs. So we're starting to drip out like tools and resources and mental models and, and posts that are kind of related to the framework or particular skills and kind of tagging them around particular job roles, around a particular uh, framework skill so that we give people a kind of a, a mental model for how these things apply in their role. So if they're a penetration tester, if they're in the SOC, if they're a compliance auditor, if they're a CISO, if they're an architect, whatever, 
they can kind of see themselves in these skills and see them their, those skills in their role and start to basically put them to practice. And so, so that's kind of where we're, where we're at right now and where we hope to go. Got it. And, you know, you were on the highly technical side before you joined CMS. Now you're, you're in charge of, you know, several hundred people as CISO. But I, I guess I wanted to ask, how did you yourself learn these skills, start to grapple with some of the softer side of cyber? And I don't know if you taught yourself, if it was someone else who kind of introduced these concepts to you. How did you come around to this? What was your personal journey there? It was definitely trial by fire. So I started off my career in, in consulting with a company called Sigital, and they're no longer around. They got bought by Synopsys. You know, in that role, you're basically in the position of calling people's babies ugly. You're finding things that are wrong with somebody else's environment, somebody's software, their networks, et cetera. And you have to communicate those things to other people. So in figuring out how to do that effectively is where I sort of started you know, really experiencing this in a visceral way. And I worked with some really brilliant people who were not good communicators. And, and I worked with some people who are not very technically sufficient or, or prolific, but they were excellent communicators. And almost always the people who could communicate things well, they could tell a story in, a, in an executive summary. They could do good risk analysis on a, on a set of findings. They were almost always more positively received by the customers. And so that, uh, like, I learned a lot from the people around me in that setting. And I also learned a lot from sitting in with the managing consultants and the salespeople who are kind of hearing the customer problems from, from the, the business development side of it, because that's what was kind of driving a lot of the technical work. Ultimately, you know, security is not the most important thing in any organization. It's whatever the organization's mission is. And to the extent that you can figure that out sooner as a security professional and tailor your work to support that mindset, the more effective you're going to be. And so when I got out of consulting, I started working at a series of startups. I did three startups before my role here. And that was really like my true trial by fire thing because I was basically dropped into these roles where I stepped into these roles and I was doing a lot of things that I'd never had to do before like budgeting, like hiring a team, like building out these compliance functions, things like that. And they were very unfamiliar to me. They were very, uh, there was a lot of Googling. It was a lot of screwing things up, coaching team members and stuff like that to try to help them work through both issues in their personal life, their career development aspirations, and feedback on the things that they were doing inside of our teams. All of that kind of coming together. It was like I learned a lot from other managers that I worked with, peers, read a lot of books on leadership and coaching and, and all of that. Um, my wife honestly has been tremendously valuable to me. She has exceptional emotional intelligence and like her family is, they are very skilled at just talking with just about anyone. They can, they can have conversations with anyone and they're just funny and engaging and, and they make you feel like very invited and special and whatnot. And I've learned a lot just by kind of being around them in terms of, how I need to conduct myself instead of just being this cold, harsh, <laughs> disconnected engineer, which I was for a long time, especially when I was doing consulting, I've you know started to open up and just be more of a open arms person with others. And that has really added a tremendous amount of value to the technical experience that I had. And, and like bringing those things together is where this kind of yin and yang together has, has sort of come from. Got it. And I imagine that's very crucial in your role now as a, as a CISO at a 
pretty big organization in CMS. And, and you know, th- this advice on the website is, is largely built for individuals in the cybersecurity field, individual users. You mentioned you were putting together the leadership aspect of, of the framework. Yep. But what do you think managers and, and management can take away from this any further that you, you, would, you would really want to communicate to, to folks like that, whether they're in the federal government or a federal contractor or otherwise overseeing people in this field? So anyone who's in a kind of management position, and these skills are not security specific. One of the reasons that the site is themed around cybersecurity is, of course, you know, I work in the field. <laughs> that is my my base of experience. But I do think we have a somewhat unique culture in cybersecurity because we we have this self-reinforcing mechanism of brashness, of arrogance, of we're smarter than the other teams because they're messing things up and causing breaches or, you know, whatever the, the sort of talking points of the, of the day or week might be. And so I think there's some unique elements of cybersecurity management in particular. And one of my hopes for people in management positions is that they are better equipped to build and assemble teams of people who are positive contributors to an organization's culture, who really are, are focused on this secure mission enablement and not just being technical rock stars who can help people from diverse backgrounds come into security. When I was in college, I studied sports management, not a very technical field. And and I probably use more of those skills, sales, marketing, things like that on a daily basis than I do anything technical that I've learned. And that's been pretty consistently true because the technical stuff is always fluid. It's always changing. It's, you know, it seems like every week there's a new whiz bang gadget out there that you have to learn and figure out how to apply and protect and all of that stuff. But as we as a field continue to develop, I think we really need good managers, good people development. And I see managers and leaders and CISOs being at the forefront of that. It's not only in how you engage and establish a culture, contribute to a culture. It's how you assemble your team. It's how you organize your team's resources to go after your and support your organization's mission. It's the way that we engage the vendor community. It's all of that stuff folded together. And you're doing all of those things in support of solving a technology problem or swarming around some kind of data security problem or cloud security problem or or whatever, you know, whatever the technical element of the problem is. But at the foundation of all of it is the people stuff. It's the non-technical stuff. Is there any difference, do you think, in these issues, these soft uh, skills and and the importance that are attached to them or the issues that folks have in attaining them in the federal side of cybersecurity versus, you know, broader public or I'm sorry, private sector, commercial sector, or, or is it pretty similar on both sides? Is there any sort of differences there? I think in many ways it's similar. The only key difference... And it's not even so much a difference, but something that is more prevalent in the federal sector is it's no secret that the federal government is usually associated in some ways with red tape, with bureaucracy, with silos, things like that. And those things, of course, exist in the private sector, in large enterprises and institutions, maybe those that are that are older and, and have a lot more organizational inertia. But skills like navigating an organization and bureaucracy hacking, that kind of stuff, I think are going to be more applicable and omnipresent, if you will, in the public sector. 
but they're not exclusively so because you're going to have to use those same skills if you're working at a big bank, at a big insurance organization or, or something of that type in the private sector where you have big bureaucracies. And I mean, bureaucracies or org structures exist in any size organization. There's this construct called Conway's Law, which basically posits that any organization that builds a thing is going to build a thing that mirrors the org structure that built it. And so if your org structure is very simple, like that in a startup, what is built is going to be a little simpler. And it's a pretty common trope in the technology sense that like simple is usually better. It's easier to maintain. It's faster. It's cheaper. It's more effective, et cetera. And if the thing, the org structure that built something is very complicated, then what's going to come out of it is going to be very complicated. It's going to be disjointed potentially. And so, you know, those skills I believe are necessary regardless of the organization that you're working in. It's just they're a little more heavily anchored or always present in the federal sense just because most agencies have a more rigid organizational structure and bureaucracy than uh, than the, the private sector that might be more fluid or or size dependent. Got it. Yeah, it certainly takes skills to to navigate different elements of the, the federal bureaucracy. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, what is on the horizon here for the soft skills of cyber? You've got the website out. Yep. What's next as you build out this initiative? So right now we're planning to continue to build out the documentation, the framework, all of that, supporting resources to, for people to get better at those things. We've got a series of like video, like complimentary video trainings, if you will, to kind of go along with the framework so we can embed those things into the documentation. And I think the most, the thing I'm most excited about coming up next is a series of, uh, we're going to do it in a, in a live streaming format. So uh, basically teeing up these contrarian conversations about popular security topics like threat modeling or third-party risk management or security engineering or you know, whatever the thing is, forensics, pen testing, and, and having people in or having myself and other people sort of participate in these conversations where one person on the conversation is going to take the technical angle and they're going to argue or debate from that perspective. And the other side of the conversation is going to take the more human-centered approach to the conversation. And we're going to talk about the merits of both, go back and forth, kind of debate, and then at the end of it, we'll, we'll bring it all together. And one of the reasons I'm very excited about that in particular is, I mean, like any industry, there's a lot of echo chambers and, you know, some idea will, will kind of get out there. It just becomes a self-reinforcing thing and it just goes. And we don't stop to pause and challenge and critique that thing to think about it from different perspectives and, and really beat it up before we make it our own. And so by intentionally creating an environment where we're looking at things from different perspectives as contrarian perspective, I feel like we're going to be able to explore topics in this unique way that doesn't really happen in other security settings and other security conversations that are happening out there. And so that's something that I feel like is very, it's, it's exciting from a contributing back to the technical ecosystem standpoint, but it's also lines up very nicely with our core mission of what we're trying to do with this project. Robert Wood, Chief Information Security Officer at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics, I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in d- direct care. And, and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn, uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, DC. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he 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 faces everything with optimism. And 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy and you should you should you know, send your this child away. Don't don't you know, and, and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever, and and you know that you know just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know. And but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. 
uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but, but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the at special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.